Alright, so I'm about four and a half minutes into the uh, Zizek-Peterson debate, and this is just going to be um, kind of live, visceral reacts to this stuff. So, Dialectical power. The radical questions of emancipation, <laughs> subjectivity, and art. Zizek's married? That's crazy. You gotta clap. Because if you don't clap with the audience, it is authoritarian, and you are bringing all the attention to yourself. Dr. Jordan Peterson is an academic and critical... Oh my god, shut up, you freaking narratives, slobs. You narrative cucks. An academic and political psychologist, his doctorate was awarded by McGill University, and he was subsequently... That's a shit ton of Sam Pellegrino. We got some McGill graduates out here. He was subsequently professor of psychology at Harvard University, and then the University of Toronto, where he is today. Okay, that's enough claps. I know you gotta, you know, rep the your team. Of two books and well over a hundred academic articles. Dr. Peterson's intellectual roots likewise lie in the 19th and early 20th century. You sleeping, boy? Where his reading of Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, and above all, Carl Jung. <sighs> you gotta read Nietzsche in the original German. Interpretation of ancient. That's a meme for people who watch TDS. ...of 20th century totalitarianism, and especially his endeavor to counter contemporary nihilism. His 12 rules for life is a... <sighs> Nietzsche, just a little red pill, is bringing up nihilism as one of the most horrible things on the planet and talking about ways to fight it. He doesn't want people to be nihilistic... He wants people to rise above themselves and do well. Bestseller and his lectures and podcasts are followed by millions around the world. You stupid cat, you better not mess anything up or I will slap you. And by slap you, I mean I will pet you aggressively and push you next to me. Both Dr. Zizek and Peterson transcend their titles, their disciplines, and the academy. Just as this debate, we hope, will transcend purely economic questions by situating those in the frame of happiness, of human flourishing itself. Ooh, this is good. We're in for quite a night. Yeah. Well, like I was going to say format. originally, this is, a, uh, this is a good little framework to hit if you're a, uh, a third positionist, because we reject modernity. We reject consumerism, and, you know, we fight against that bullcrap dichotomy, so, let's hit it. Faders will have 30 minutes to make a substantial opening statement, to lay out an argument. Dr. Peterson first, followed by Dr. Zizek. Each will then have, in the same order, 10 minutes to reply. 
I will then moderate 45 minutes or so of questions, many of which will come from you. Hold on, I gotta respond to a uh, Snapchat message from the old person I consider to be an ex at this point. Because I'm kind of blowing her out on political points. Um, we're talking about Alex Jones and the censorship. I'm sorry to take such a detraction, but... Um, shit, what were we talking about? Um, we were talking about one of her pets being suffocated by clothes. I said, good, the child must not die. She said, destroy the child. I said, corrupt them all. And she said, God, I fucking hate him, but that shit makes me laugh. And I said, he's dialed back a small bit, talking about Alex. Uh, he's dialed back a small bit lately because he's seen how the overlords um, of the media hate conspiracy theories, but he'll always be a meme. And she said, I can't imagine people still tuning in to listen to him. His views are probably plummeting. Further from the truth, but I said, nah, it's actually surprising. His base is growing every time I've just glanced at his stats. Turning out to be a conspiracy theorist that is banned from YouTube makes your viewership on the home site skyrocket. It's not even like he really hits the real problems in the U.S., but he still gets, anytime I do the ugh, it's in triple brackets um, because I can't do the echo effect. Um, but, uh, it's not even like he really hits the real problems in the U.S., but he still gets people to watch him since YouTube is banning anyone who is worth listening to and those who are caught in the crossfire, which Alex is, and his kind of voice, along with Jimmy Dore and any other anti-war, anti-established voices like, as much as I hate this, uh, I had to list it off, Kalinsky, um... And his kind of people. Which pisses me off because on foreign policy, Kyle, Jimmy, and I are almost eye to eye for our own separate reasons. And that shit gets cut down. But if you support war in the Middle East and anything else the mainstream media and the establishment agrees with, you're golden. <coughs> Glenn Beck, uh, not saying any names here, but Glenn Beck, Shapiro, uh, Stephen Crowder, CRTV... Blaze TV, Uyghur, um, Kasparian, ContraPoints, Piker. <coughs> so that's how I went, and she saw the message, but she hasn't responded yet. So, we'll see. We'll see how she responds, and we'll get live visceral reacts between this and the Peterson debates. But, um, let's get back to this. I need to get into the mindset. And I'm also drinking heavily. Audience, both here in Toronto and online. With that, let's get underway. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Jordan Peterson for the first opening statement. Oh boy! We got a, a hierarchy and a happiness. We can do more stuff because of capitalism. Ugh. Which well, stretch for that insanely enthusiastic welcome for the entire event and, and also for being here. I have to tell you first um, that this 
event, and I suppose my life in some sense, hit a new milestone that I was just made aware of by a stagehand today backstage who informed me that last week the tickets for this event were being scalped online at a higher price than the tickets for the Leafs playoff games. <laughs> That's actually pretty funny. Wow. For such a crappy event. I forgot that. So I, I don't know what to make of that. That's... All right. So how did I prepare for this? Um, I went... I familiarized myself to the degree that it was possible with Slavoj Žižek's work, and that wasn't that possible because he has a lot of work and he's a very original thinker, and this debate was put together in relatively short order. Going along with that, it's like he, you know, Slavoj, he has a huge record. Um, I've seen stuff. He has a freaking cooking show where he talks about, like, you know, not really postmodernism, but power relations, that kind of stuff, and it's, he's just all over the board, and he's a fantastic thinker, insofar as that goes, so, good point right here. What I did instead was return to what I regarded as the original cause of all the trouble, let's say, which was the Communist Manifesto, and what I attempted to do, because that's Marx, and we're here to talk about Marxism, let's say, and, um, what I tried to do was read it. And to read something, you don't just follow the words and follow the meaning, but you take apart the sentences and you ask yourself at this level of phrase and at the level of sentence and at the level of paragraph, is this true? Are there counter-arguments that can be put forward that... Okay, shut the fuck up. You read the whole thing... You go through, okay, it will break down in this way. For anybody who has read, anybody who has done public speaking, anybody who has done debate, you don't, uh, you can go in so far as like breaking apart what people say to the very syntax, but that is not the way to do it. You take apart section by section, you see, okay, you put yourself in the mindset of how people talk. You frame yourself inside the dialectic or the rhetoric that they're working with. And you see, okay, what is the best way to refute that insofar as, you know, I have my own frame to work with? Or are they correct? Which, you know, Marx, he has nailed very many points. That's the thing. He has done very well as a right-winger, socially, but a an economically leftist person, I will freely admit, Marx, Karl, even as much as I am skeptical of the Jews, I, I will say he has a fantastic point in some respects. You know... I really only, and this is, you know, people are going to try to pin me on this stuff. Um, they say, you know, you haven't read the full Communist Manifesto. I may read that, but I have a whole catalog of The Lightning in the Sun, Mein Kampf, uh, The Culture of Critique. Uh, you know, in my free time, I like rereading 1984 and a lot of George Orwell's, uh, Orwell's work. Um, 
I have the uh, the Gulag Archipelago, um, the Archipelago, and then you know back from my objectivist libertarian days, um, uh, I, I wasn't really one hundred percent like there is no God objectivist, um, but I have the Fountainhead. I have We the Living, the virtue of selfishness. You know, I have such a backlog of stuff to read. I can't go through stuff, you know, just as far as my autistic, you know, little, like, political mind goes. I need to have time to read everything, and I hate reading. But insofar as I've gone, I've seen how, you know, Marx works, and I appreciate his takedown of capitalism. That is one of the biggest things next to realizing the JQ of how I don't like capitalism. But let's get back to this. Um, I don't mean to take up too much time, but this is going to be a long time. Uh, we're only nine minutes in. Incredible. Is this solid thinking? And I have to tell you, and I'm not trying to be flippant here, that I have rarely read a tract. Now, I read it when I was 18. It was a long time ago. Like, that's 40 years ago. But You know a tract you should read? Did six million really die? I rarely read a tract that made as many errors per sentence, conceptual errors per sentence, as the Communist Manifesto. It was quite a miraculous reading. It, and I actually can't speak to this point because I haven't read the Communist Manifesto, but I may... I may get a copy the next time I have kind of a copious paycheck to drop a little bit of stuff on. Um, I'm very easily impressionable, but I do hold everything with a grain of salt. Even the right-wing stuff that I read, um, you know, it's got to be very engaging to me. It has to be very well-written and well-composed. But, you know, it, it's, um, Peterson, I will say for all the stuff that he gets wrong, he is an academic. He knows how to work with everything. Um, he is intellectually honest in so far as, I, I feel like I've used in so far as, um, I've used that so many times, but you know, as far as he has read, he is an academic, he has time to read, he actually likes reading and assimilating that knowledge, whereas I like to get the bullet points, I like to know what is up, and, you know, give me the meat and potatoes, and I can expand upon that myself. But, let's go back to this, God dang it, I'm pausing so much. It was interesting to think about it psychologically as well because I've read student papers that were of the same ilk in some sense, although I'm not suggesting that they were of the same level of glittering literary brilliance and polemic quality. But I also understand that the Communist Manifesto was a call for revolution and not a standard logical argument, but that notwithstanding... As far as that goes, I don't know how, f how far... Like, in, like, how far that goes as it is. But I feel like, you know, there's 
I I have a tanky friend. He's in Japan at the moment. He does all this other stuff. He's a weeaboo tanky. But he's woke on third worldism. He's woke on race relations, power relations, and all that stuff. And he is not a radical. He doesn't do all this other stuff. He he has actually read the manifesto. And he knows how everything kind of plays into each other. And he just says it's, um, you know, he doesn't view the revolutionary aspect of it so much as the um, reformal, um, incremental aspect of it as much. So that's how this goes. Some things to say about the authors psychologically. The first thing is that it doesn't seem to me that either Marx or Engels grappled with one fundamental, with this particular fundamental truth, which is that um, almost all ideas are wrong. And so, and it doesn't matter if they're your ideas or someone else's ideas, they're probably wrong. And even if they strike you with the force of brilliance, your job is to assume, first of all, that they're probably wrong, and then to assault them with everything you have in your arsenal and see if they can survive. And That's a really good call on his part, because, you know, normally he's a gatekeeper. And, you know, he goes in and he says, you know, this is how it's supposed to be. You know, don't really have any skepticism as to, you know, racial identity, political identity, how you fit into the bigger picture in this, you know, higher order. But right here, he's let the mask slip a little bit where, you know, you know, you have to take everything with a grain of salt to develop your own political ideology. So this is something I can give him, you know, um, I can give him credit for. Struck me about the Communist Manifesto was it was akin to something Jung said about typical thinking, and this was the thinking of people who weren't trained to think. He said that the typical thinker has a thought; it appears to them like an object might appear in a room. The thought appears, and then they just they just accept it as true. They don't go the second step, which is to think about the thinking, and that's the real essence of critical thinking. And so. That's what you try to teach people in university, is to read a text and to think about it critically. Not to destroy the utility of the text, but to separate the wheat from the chaff. That's what I try to do. Good call right here. Again, you know, I don't like Peterson too much on stuff, but as far as it goes with knowledge assimilation in and of yourself, as opposed to talking with him... And so he has his own way of going about things, but here he silently slips in, you are your own person, which is what I like. Outside of his gatekeeping, you know, need for how stuff goes, he lets you become your own individual, and, you know, if you want to become individualistic or like a collectivist individual where you have your own relevance, you know, 
locked into a system of, okay, here's the identity group I work with. Um, I'm going to strive for that before I strive before myself. And I'm going to learn as much as I can and put into work as much as I can before, you know, all this other global homo gayplex affects everything. It's it, this is this is a good call. In the Communist Manifesto was to separate the wheat from the chaff, and I'm afraid I found some wheat, yes, but mostly chaff, and I'm going to explain why. I don't think this is going to be a part where it's very intellectually honest, so you know we'll see how it goes uh, because. Jordan Peterson does have his loyalties and necessarily must cater to the people who are his paymasters. So we'll see how this goes through the rest of it because I don't think Slavoj, I don't think he has his own paymasters and he's just going off of what he has kind of locked in in and of himself so we'll see hopefully uh, in relatively short order so I'm going to outline 10 of the fundamental axioms of the communist manifesto and so these are truths that Good are here, held as self-evident by the authors and um, they're truths that are presented in some sense as unquestioned and I'm going to question them and tell you why I think they're um, unreliable. Now we should remember that this tract was actually written 170 years ago. That's a long time ago. And we have learned a fair bit from since then about human nature, about society, about politics, about economics. There's lots of mysteries left to be unsolved, but left to be solved. But we are slightly wiser, I presume, than we were at one point. <laughs> and so you can forgive the authors to some degree for what they didn't know. But that doesn't matter given that the essence of this doctrine... It Just going to say, current year argument is absolutely moot. ...held as sacrosanct by a large proportion of academics. Probably um, are among the most, what would you call, guilty of that particular sin. So, here's proposition number one. History is to be viewed primarily as an economic class struggle. All right, so, so let's think about that for a minute. Um, first of all, is there the proposition there is that history is primarily to be viewed through an economic lens, and I think that's a debatable proposition because there are The thing is, whenever, and, and this is probably going to catch me a lot of heat, um, I really don't care. Economic class struggle you know, that is a very valid, valid um, struggle to bring up. Because, you know, it's... Um, as far as it goes, there is definitely a white-collar, that kind of stuff, ruling class... And the proletarian working class 
is subjugated to it. So, I don't know. I have kind of a bias going into this. I hate how post-Marxism, post-modernism, post-colonial theory, pardon me, tries to deconstruct everything and change a class struggle into a race struggle when they are not woke to who really causes the trouble or the struggle within the races because just as a whole other issue in an, it like in itself whites we just want to be left alone we want to libertarianism that is an inherently white ideology we don't want to impede upon others we want to be left alone you know we may even want to help others find their own flourishment you know the the black people all that other stuff we don't want to impede upon that um but it happens because there is a certain hierarchy to society and I don't know, I don't want to detract too much or go off on the weeds, but uh, we'll go back to, um, we'll go back to Peterson here. Their motivation. 13 and a quarter kind of crap. Derived human beings than economics, and those have to be taken into account, especially the drive people other than economic competition, like economic cooperation, for example. And so that's a problem. The other problem is that it's actually not nearly a pessimistic enough um, description of the actual problem because history, history, this is to give the devil his due. The idea that one of the driving forces between history is hierarchical struggle is absolutely true. But the idea that that's actually... History is not true because it's deeper than history. It's biology itself because organisms of all sorts organize themselves into hierarchies. Okay, I have to pee real quick. Let me um, let me pause this. I will be right back.
get into my chill sweatpants. I feel like doing a game stream after this, so, you know, can't do too much, um, let's check my phone, see, So, good old X ain't liking what I post because I BTFO'd a nigga. Okay, so, we'll go. Arrange themselves into a winner-take-all situation. And so, and that, that is implicit in some sense in Marx, Marx's thinking because, of course, Marx believed that in a capitalist society, capital would accumulate in the hands of fewer and fewer people, mm -hmm. and that actually is in keeping with the nature of hierarchical organizations. Now, it's probably going to show for the juice here in a sec. I didn't really pay attention the first time I saw this. <clears throat> I started cleaning while listening to stuff within the first uh, 30 minutes, so I really only heard Jordan Peterson's side. I'm really going to be interested in uh, Zizek's side after this because I'm more sympathetic to uh, Slavoj as opposed to Jordan. So we'll see. The problem with that isn't so much the fact of... The, so there's, the, there's accuracy in the accusation that that is an eternal form of motivation for struggle. It's an <laughs> underestimation of the seriousness of the problem because it attributes it to the structure of human societies rather than the deeper reality of the existence of hierarchical structures. Don't drink to the point that I drink because you're going to hiccup a lot. And I'm pretty sure I have a little bit of um, esophageal constriction happening. Don't drink, guys. I can't encourage enough which, as they also characterize the animal kingdom to a large degree, are clearly not only human constructions. And the idea that there's hierarchical competition among human beings, there's evidence for that that goes back at least to the Paleolithic times. And so that's the next problem, is that, well, the, the, this ancient problem of hierarchical structure is clearly not attributable to capitalism because it existed 
long in human history before capitalism existed, and then it predated human history itself. So the question then arises, why would you necessarily, at least implicitly, link the class struggle with capitalism, given that it's a far deeper problem? And now, it's also, you've got to understand that this is a deeper problem for people on the left, not just for people on the right. It is the case that hierarchical structures dispossess those people who are at the bottom, those creatures who are at the bottom, speaking, say, of animals, but those people who are at the bottom, and that that is a fundamental existential problem. But the other thing that Marx didn't seem to take into account is that there, there, there are far more reasons that human beings struggle than their economic class struggle, even if you build the hierarchical idea into that, which is a more comprehensive way of thinking about it. Human beings struggle with themselves, with the malevolence that's inside themselves, with the evil that they're capable of doing, with the spiritual and psychological warfare that goes on within them. And we're also actually always at odds with nature. And this never seems to show up in Marx, and it doesn't show up in Marxists, Marxism in general. It's as if nature doesn't exist. The primary conflict, as far as I'm concerned, or a primary conflict that human beings engage in, is the struggle for life in a cruel and harsh natural world. That's kind of interesting. <clears throat> I mean, I don't know um, as far as the biological component goes in, but this is sort of a, uh, you know, as I was just listening, cleaning up, and just having it in, uh, I never really had a, uh, you know, um, awareness of how he went in with this stuff. It seems like that might be a correct assumption. And, you know, it's, it, it, it is probably very valid. So, you know, this, I, I, uh, I actually appreciate this point. So let's see how he develops this further. It's as if, it's as if that doesn't exist in the Marxist domain. If human beings have a problem, it's because... I just hate the narrative cucks that keep clapping for Peterson or keep clapping for Zizek. It's, you need to go into this completely, you know, your own person, you know, uh, stripping apart the narratives and saying, okay, how does this apply? How is this correct? What, what do... How does everything go? So, we'll see. There's a class struggle that's essentially economic. It's like, no, human beings have problems because we come into life uh -huh. starving and lonesome. And we have to solve that problem continually. And we make our social arrangements at Indeed. least in part to ameliorate that as well as to, as to, well, upon occasion, exacerbate it. And so there's also very little understanding in the Communist Manifesto that any of the... Like say hierarchical organizations that human beings have put together might have a positive element, and that's an absolute catastrophe because hierarchical structures are actually necessary to solve complicated social problems. We have to organize ourselves in some manner, and you have to give the devil his due. And so, 
It is the case that hierarchies dispossess people, and that's a big problem. That's the fundamental problem of inequality. But it's also the case that hierarchies happen to be a very efficient way of distributing resources. And it's finally the case that human hierarchies are not fundamentally predicated on power. And I would say the biological, anthropological data on that are crystal clear. You don't rise to a position of authority that's reliable in a human society primarily by exploiting other people. It's a very unstable... Okay, okay. So, I'm actually going to uh, well, deconstruct cool. that. Uh, not really deconstruct as in like 30-minute deconstruction. But getting to a position of authority where you can, um, you know, uh, abuse other people, just look at a certain race that is 2% of the U.S. population. Boom. You get to see nepotism. You get to see how people deal with everything. And you see how certain people deal with everything and it's just it is not it is not good because you see that nepotism takes over you see that people think they're um much smarter than they are when my friend Chris he got he got a slang uh slung um IP percentages or IQ percentages at me and I'm just like you're freaking kidding me I did not know that let's uh let's and I said let's dial that back oh I didn't say to him but in my mind I said let's dial that back what um what contributes to that but Let's uh, let's see how Peterson continue, uh, continues. Well, the people that laugh might do it that way. That's, I mean, that's a good little jab. That's a good little spike. Let's see how it okay, goes. Okay, now the other another problem that comes up right away is that Marx also assumes that you can think about history as a binary class struggle with clear divisions between, say, the proletariat and the... It's not wrong. And that's actually a problem, because it's not so easy to make a firm division between who's exploiter and who's um, exploitee. Like, if you're woke to the Jews, you will know who's the exploiter and who's the exploitee. So I do not agree with this at all. Um, because it's not obvious like in the case of small shareholders, let's say, whether or not they happen to be part of the oppressed or part of the oppressor. This actually turned out to be a big problem in the Russian Revolution. And by big problem, I mean tremendously big problem. Because it turned out that you could fragment people into multiple identities, and that, that's a fairly easy thing to do. As far as this goes, that is post-Marxism, that is colonial theory where, you know, you go towards the in, uh, the intersectional, uh, how everything goes, where, you know, it's this black, um, this Asian, this Indian, 
identity goes. You know, this is how everything goes. You know, it's not sheerly a class, uh, a class struggle among the, you know, unified proletariat, the lumpen proletariat, all that kind of stuff. So, let's see how this goes. You could usually find some axis along which they were part of the oppressor class. It might have been a consequence of their education, or it might have been a consequence of their... Of their, of their, uh, of the wealth that they strived to accumulate. I'm gonna be a fag here. I really like his suit. It's blue. It's very, you know, non-confrontational. It's very warm. You know. This, this is how it is. I, um, I'm very chill. But. In their life, or it might have been a consequence of the fact that they had parents or grandparents who were educated or rich or that they were a member of the priesthood or that they were socialists or anyways the, the listing of how it was possible for you to be bourgeois instead of proletariat grew immensely and that was one of the reasons that the Red Terror claimed all the victims that it claimed and so that was a huge problem it was probably most exemplified by the de demolition of the Kulaks who were basically peasants mm -hmm. peasant farmers although effective ones in the Soviet Union, who had managed to raise themselves out of serfdom over a period of about 40 years and to gather some, some degree of material security about them. And about 1.8 million of them were exiled. Uh, about 400,000 were killed. And the net consequence mm. of that um, removal of their private property because of their bourgeois status was arguably the death of 6 million Ukrainians in the famines of the 1930s. And so... Oh, shoot. That's more than the people who died in the Holocaust. Wow-wee. Yeah, that was a bad idea. That was a very, very bad idea. It's also bad in this way, and this is a real sleight of hand that Marx pulls off. Is you have a binary class division, proletariat bourgeoisie, and you have an implicit idea that all of the good is on the side of the proletariat, and all of the evil is on the side of the bourgeoisie. And that's classic group identity thinking, you know. It's one of the reasons I don't like identity. But the thing is, it's that's not necessarily wrong. You know, it's, it, it, it's crazy, but that's just how it is. It's just because... Once you divide people into groups and pit them against one another, it's very easy to assume that all the evil in the world can be attributed to one group, the hypothetical oppressors, and all the good to the other. And that... Don't clap. That's, that's, that's just that's naive. That's naive beyond comprehension, because um, it's absolutely foolish to make the presumption that you can identify someone's moral worth with their economic standing. So, and that actually turned out to be a real problem as well because um, Marx he has to take the pause here because you know it's like as far as Jordan Peterson goes he has to really think about what he is saying because you know he is on the right side quote unquote right but literally the right-hand side of the political spectrum. 
but he is a, um, he's a, he is a, um, right liberal, right liberal libertarian. Up with this idea, which is a crazy idea as far as I can tell, of the, that's a technical term, crazy idea, uh, of the dictatorship of the proletariat. And that's the next idea that I really stumbled across. It was like, okay, so what's the problem? Well, the problem is the capitalists own everything. They own all the means of production. And they're oppressing everyone. That would be all the workers. Uh, and there's going to be a race to the bottom of wages for the workers as the capitalists strive to extract more and more um, value from the labor of the proletariat by competing with other capitalists to drive wages downward, which, by the way, didn't happen partly because wages, wage earners can become scarce and that actually drives the market value upward. But the fact that, that you assume eight... I'll have to smash X on that, but you know, I'll probably make a post as far as that goes because, you know, I um, I made a kind of thing where you know, capitalism failed Communism failed, and a third way is probably the best, so. ...that all the evil can be attributed to the capitalists, and all the good, the bourgeoisie, and all the good could be attributed to the proletariat, meant that you could hypothesize that a dictatorship of the proletariat could come about, and that was the, the, the first stage in the communist revolution. And remember, this is a call for revolution, and not just revolution, but bloody violent revolution and the overthrow of all uh, overthrowing of all existent social structures don't clap oh this is going to m make me the maddest because people are such narrative hawks that the people who go in listening to try to see that peter sent oh he btfo epic with logic there are people who, you know, they do the same with Zizek, but. Don't laugh. Don't laugh. Don't clap. Just listen. Um, anyways, the, 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 the problem with that, you see, is that because all the evil isn't divided so easily up into oppressor and oppressed, that when you do establish a dictator of the proletariat to the degree that you can do that, which you actually can't because it's technically impossible Stop. and an absurd thing to consider to begin with, not least of the problem it's, of central... You can actually do it. Stop. Stop, Jordan. Just stop. Just keep talking. Don't do all this bullcrap poogie butthole. You have I'm going to do straight up um, Majora's Mask after this. I'm going to do some Legend of Zelda collection, this kind of stuff. Emphasize that you can take away all the property of the capitalists. You can replace the capitalist class with a minority of proletariats how they're going to be chosen isn't exactly clear in the Communist Manifesto, that none of the people who are from the proletariat class are going to be corrupted by that sudden access to power because they're, well, by definition, good, 
So, so then you have the good people who are running the world, and you also have them centralized so that they can make decision, decisions that are insanely complicated to make, in, in fact, impossibly complicated to make. And so that's a failure conceptually on both dimensions because, first of all, all the proletariat aren't going to be good, and when you give put people in the same position as the evil capitalists, especially if you believe that social pressure is one of the determining factors of human character, which the Marxists certainly believe, then why wouldn't you assume that the proletariat would immediately become as or more corrupt than the capitalists, which is, of course, I would say exactly what happened every time this experiment was run. And then... Don't clap. Oh, my God. Stop. Is, well, what makes you think that you can take some system as complicated as, like, capitalist free market society and centralize that and put decision-making power in the hands of a few people, the mechanisms by, without specifying the mechanisms by which you're going to choose them? Like, what makes you think they're going to have the wisdom or the ability to do what the capitalists were doing, unless you assume, as Marx did, that all of the evil was with the capitalists and all the good was with the proletariats, and that nothing that capitalists did constituted valid labor, which is another thing that Marx assumed, which is palpably absurd. Because people who are... Absurd. Like, maybe if you're a dissolute aristocrat from 1830 and or earlier, and you run a feudal estate and all you do is spend your time gambling and... And, and, and chasing prostitutes, well, then the, your labor value is zero. But if you're, if you're running a business and, and it's a successful business, first of all, you're a bloody fool to explo exploit your workers because even if you're greedy as sin, because you're not going to extract the maximum amount of labor out of them by doing that. And the notion that you're adding no productive value as a manager rather than a capitalist is it's absolutely absurd. All it does is indicate that you either know nothing whatsoever about how an actual business works, or you refuse to know anything about how an actual business works. So that's... That's also a, that's also a big problem. So then the next problem is the criticism of profit. It's like, well, what's wrong with profit exactly? What, what's the problem with profit? Well, the idea from the Marxist perspective, was that profit was theft. You know, but profit, well, can be theft, because crooked people can run companies, and so sometimes profit is theft, but that certainly doesn't mean that it's always theft. What it means, in part, at least, if the capitalist is adding value to the corporation, then there's some utility and some fairness in him or her extracting the value of their abstract labor, their thought, their abstract abilities, their ability to manage the company and to engage in proper competition and product development and efficiency and the proper treatment of the workers and all of that. And then if they can create a profit, well, then they have a little bit of security for times that aren't so good, and that seems absolutely bloody necessary as far as I'm concerned. And then the next thing is, well, how can you grow if you don't have a profit? And if you have an enterprise that's valuable and worthwhile, and some enterprises are valuable and worthwhile, then it seems to me that a little bit of profit to help you grow seems to be the right approach. And so, and then the other issue with profit, and you know this if you've ever run a business, is it's a really useful constraint. You know, like, it's not enough to have a good idea. It's not a good, enough to have a good idea and a sales and marketing plan. 
and then to implement that and all of that, that's bloody difficult. Like it's not e easy to have a good idea and it's mm. not easy to come up with a good sales and marketing plan and it's not easy to find customers and satisfy them. And so if you allow profit to, to constitute a limitation on what it is that you might reasonably attempt, it provides a good constraint on, on wasted labor. And so most of the things that I've done in my life, even psychologically, that were designed to help people's psychological health, I tried to run on a for-profit basis. And the reason for what that was, apart from the fact that I'm not averse to making a profit, partly so my enterprises can grow, but was also so that there were forms of stupidity that I couldn't engage in because I would be punished by the market enough to eradicate the enterprise. And so... Ah! Trying to profit, uh, profit off of stupidity, goy. I couldn't do all this stuff. I'm good. Ugh. And to make sure I, I, I provide narratives for these people. Because, oh, oh no, oh, uh. <laughs> Okay, and then so the next the next issue, this is a weird one. So Marx and Engels also assume that this dictatorship of the proletariat, which involves absurd centralization, the overwhelming probability of corruption, and impossible computation, as the proletariat now try to rationally compute the manner in which an entire market economy could run, which cannot be done because it's far too complicated for anybody to think through. Um, the next theory is that somehow the proletariat dictatorship would become magically hyperproductive. And there's actually no theory at all about how that's going to happen. And so I had to infer the theory, and the theory seems to be that once you eradicate the bourgeoisie, because they're evil, and you get rid of their private property, and you, 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 you eradicate the profit motive, then all of a sudden, magically, the small percentage of the proletariat who now run the society determine how they can make their productive enterprises productive enough so they become hyperproductive. Now, and they need to become hyperproductive for the last error to be logically coherent in relationship to the Marxist theory, which is that at some point the proletariat, the dictatorship of the proletariat, will become so hyperproductive that there'll be enough material goods for everyone across all dimensions. Mm. And when that happens, then what people will do is spontaneously engage in meaningful creative labor, which is what they had been alienated from in the capitalist horror show, and the utopia will be magically ushered in. But there's no indication about how that hyperproductivity is going to come about, and there's, no also, there's also no understanding that, well, that isn't the utopia that is going to suit everyone because there are great differences between people. And some people are going to find what they want in love and some are going to find it in social being and some are going to find it in conflict and competition and some are going to find it in creativity as Marx pointed out. But the notion that that, that will necessarily be the end goal for the utopian state is preposterous. And then there's the Dostoevskian observation too, which is one not to be taken lightly, which is what sort of shallow conception of people do you have that makes you think that 
if you gave people enough bread and cake and the Dostoevsky in terms and nothing to do with busy them to bu except to busy themselves with continuity with continuity of the species that they would all, all of a sudden become peaceful and heavenly Dostoevsky's idea was that you know we were built for trouble and if we were ever handed everything we were we needed on a silver platter the first thing we would do is engage in some form of creative destruction just so something unexpected could happen just so we could have the adventure of our lives and I think there's something well, there's something to be said for that mm. I actually so passed out so let's not do that and I'll finish up later on boom